Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a fortnightly celebration of books. Today's episode is a conversation between former ABC US Bureau Chief Zoe Daniel and ABC journalist Raf Epstein. Together they'll be discussing a new book written by Zoe and ABC Europe's Roscoe Whalen titled Greetings from Trumpland. Greetings from Trumpland explores how Donald Trump's one-term presidency changed the world and now in our post-Trump world, just how far-reaching and long-standing the consequences may be. Now, before we start, as always, a quick reminder, this event was recorded live via the internet, so there has been some impact on the sound quality of the episode. But now, to introduce Raf and Zoe, here's the host of the event, Readings Programming Manager, Chris Gordon. Good evening, everyone. I'm Chris Gordon. I'm Programming Manager for Readings, and I'm delighted to be able to welcome you here on behalf of HarperCollins and on behalf of Readings. At the moment, I'm speaking from the Kulin Nation, and on behalf of all of you here, I want to pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. But I also want to say to them, thank you. Thank you for letting me live somewhere so beautiful. And of course, when I start thinking about all the stories that make up Melbourne and Victoria and Australia, I think about the people that we put into these incredible positions, these people that we rely on to make sense of who we are and why we are. And of course, I'm talking about the great journalists that we have in this country and I'm talking about our dear friend, Raph Epstein. You will know him from 774. You will know him because he is one of those blokes that everybody wants to have a cuppa with, that wants to talk about what they've been reading, watching and listening to. But he's also the bloke that you turn on when you want to find out why something is happening. Let's make him really welcome. Remember, we're at that reading shop. So, Rafi, I'm saying come up to the microphone. You can't really hear yourself think because everybody's applauding you. Everyone's excited. Come on, Raf. Come up to the microphone. Take over. Thank you very much. Great to be a part of it, Chris. Great to be at readings. The first bookshop I was taken to by my parents when Mark Rubo's place was over the road in the place where the Nova is and it was just pine bookshelves, so it's very exciting. I can remember what it was like. Last public function I think I did in Melbourne was a Sophie McNeil book. Um, we can't say we didn't know, which you should also read, another great ABC alumni. Uh, but it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to someone who I know well. Zoe and I work together on the programs AMP and The World today. A long, long time ago she had a fantastic tour of a number of countries. Now she has produced this book, Greetings from Trump Land, with one of the people who helped her do all that fantastic reporting for America. Um, so a huge put your hands together and welcome to Zoe Daniel. Yay! I know, it's a bit weird, sorry. Um, Zoe, great to have you. Great to be chatting to you. We don't catch up nearly enough. Um, let's plunge on into the book. Uh, actually, first question, how hard was it? to put this all together? Oh, well, thank you, Raf, and thank you, Chris. I'm, I'm kind of still reeling from that incredible introduction, to be honest. What a what a talent. M maybe we should um, recruit Chris to be doing something for the ABC. Wow, what a, what a, um, a way to be introduced. Um, look, it was hard. This was an absolute head-splitting book to write. This is my third book. I, I wrote a 
I guess you could loosely term it a memoir, but a story of my time living in and working in Southeast Asia when I was Southeast Asia correspondent. Um, and that that sort of flowed a lot more easily. You know, these four years of covering the election and, and the term of Donald Trump as president was really complicated. Um, there, there are just so many moving parts in that story and the way that Roscoe Whalen, my colleague, and I have woven this is around my travels through the United States. I mean, I travelled to something like 44 states in the four years that I was there and, and spoke to a lot of people and a lot of the stories um, kind of told through uh, those people's stories in a way, like their perspectives, um, but also just some really challenging stuff about Donald Trump himself, who, who he is, how, how he got elected, um, what, what his personality is like, how he um, manipulated information and mobilised people um, to get them behind him, and then kind of how we got to where we are now and, and just what that means. Okay, he's out of office, but I think anyone who reads the book will understand that my position is, well, that doesn't mean it's over. Uh, he's changed a lot of things globally for us here in Australia in various ways. So to try to condense that into a book, you know, every chapter could have been a book. Uh, Roscoe and I were kind of tearing our hair out some of the time because it's like, oh, each chapter should be, you know, this number of words and then suddenly it's double that amount of words and you could you could just keep going and then we had to split some chapters into two chapters because there was just so much to say. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> and, of course, it didn't end. I mean, where do you rule a line? Yeah, of course. Um, this book was supposed to come out in kind of the first week or two of January and here we are kind of getting towards late February and it sort of came to a point where it's like, okay, we've got to send this book to the printer. Um, but, you know, it could have kept going. Um, the overall impression from the book, though, which I think you're trying to convey, um, the seeds were sown a long time ago and it's amazing how much of what you saw quite a few years ago just is even more powerful with the passage of time. Um, but let's start with the sort of the days before the 2016 presidential election, so just before he, his surprise win. I remember being surprised. I remember watching Florida and going, oh, might actually have to talk about this a lot. Um, you were not as surprised. Why not? What were people saying to you? Because I'd spent a year travelling around America talking to ordinary people. And, you know, I think you and I kind of know each other well enough and you kind of know my reporting well enough to know that that's kind of what I gravitate to. I mean, my background, I grew up in Launceston in Tasmania in a regional city. I, I'm kind of a country girl at heart. I presented the country hour. I was a rural reporter. You know, the thing I love about reporting is getting out into the field and just kind of having yarn with people getting perspective. So we, we basically spent a whole year doing that in the places where Donald Trump supporters were. And what kind of kept striking me was well, I sort of feel like he's going to win the election. He just has so much support. We would go to events. There'd be 10,000, 20,000 people there. There'd be people queued for blocks. There'd be cars parked up on verges on freeways, people walking for miles to get to his events, standing out in the freezing cold at midnight when he was, you know, stuck in Wisconsin and had to get back to Virginia and, you know, people so passionate about Donald Trump. And then I'd go to Hillary Clinton's events and there'd be, you know, 250 people there and Hillary would be giving something like a PowerPoint 
presentation, you know, in a basketball gym. Like there was just so much contrast. And and I started second-guessing myself a bit as it got closer and closer to the election where I was thinking, you know, maybe I'm spending too much time with Donald Trump supporters. I'm getting kind of a skewed sense of how this is going to play. Uh, I remember a couple of days before the election I called um, someone very senior in Australian sort of political analysis who was based in the US and said, what do you think is going to happen? He said, oh, no, Hillary's got it for sure, definitely. And I was in Western Pennsylvania at the time and all I could see was just a sea of Trump-Pence signs, make America great again. And I was just like, really? I'm just not convinced. And that kind of kept happening. So, you know, without sort of going on and on about this, but it kind of came to that point of being at Hillary Clinton's venue on election night and ABC made a decision and obviously it was with collaboration with me that I would be at Hillary's venue because obviously they expected Hillary to win and then kind of again a couple of days before the election I said you know I think we might need to build the staff up on the Trump side because I, I, I kind of don't expect I don't think this is a fait accompli sure sure so we did that and then of course as you said um, sitting at Hillary Clinton's venue with a glass ceiling and we were actually in the basement sort of madly on our computers trying to read results and figure out what was going on and Florida went and I Roscoe was sitting next to me my co-writer and I just was like it's done he's won and Ros- he, he just kind of looked at me and I just had this whoa this is like this is history like I'm actually getting that sort of prickle you know, when you're a reporter and you're you're the one who has to then go on TV and try to explain to people what has happened and it's like the whole world is looking at that moment and, you know, crawling up these TV risers and having earpieces shoved in and microphones shoved on and, you know, Joe O'Brien saying, what's going on? Or Virginia <laughs> or Rowley saying, what's, what's going on? And I'm just like... Oh, what is going on? Like trying to synthesize that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I expected it to happen and I kind of didn't believe in myself that it was going to happen. And then when it happened, I thought, well, that's totally unsurprising. Can I just say her passion and her skill at being out there? A, it's amazing to see Zoe in action. B, one of the best analysts, I think, at the moment in Canberra is actually one of the people who I have on the radio, Brett Worthington, because he comes from rural and there's something about ABC and rural. And getting out there is just a huge strength. Anyway, that's my little ABC plug. So, so that's the experience you had, and I guess so many did. Um, how did that colour the next years? The fact that that was wrong, how much did that influence your reporting? Um, look, I, I think it was it was a case of sort of continuing to try to pick that apart. You know, what, what guided us wrong? Um, th- that thing of... My sense was he was going to win it, but all the polls were the other way, all the analysts were the other way. So, you know, what what were we not listening to? So sort of trying to spend as much time as possible with people who supported Donald Trump to just understand why they put up with the sort of less civil elements of his personality, shall we say, and there's much more extreme ways of putting it. But, you know, also a lot of the Trump supporters we spent time with who feature in the book are are quite moderate by Trump supporter standards. You know, they're not kind of the horned people who 
climbed the Capitol steps and, and that. You know, these are sort of ordinary Americans who had lost hope, um, were disappointed with Barack Obama, many of whom had voted for Barack Obama, voted for uh, a renegade anti-politician, um, deliberately thinking he would shake up the establishment in, in the hope that he could deliver not only jobs but a, a sort of a return to general prosperity and optimism in particularly inland parts of the country that have been drastically affected by um, technological revolution, mm. the, the GFC, closure of manufacturing, all those sorts of things, and, and have less hope for their kids' future than they had for their own. So kind of that, that notion of American exceptionalism for them has just fallen away. So in that sense, you know, they, they put their money on Donald Trump because they, they liked his lack of PC uh, language and his whole attitude of sort of blowing up the whole thing and starting again. And, and in a way, there was a perfect storm with Hillary Clinton as well in that, you know, she was the archetypal establishment candidate against the the complete antithesis of that. So that that just came together in a, in a nexus at that time. Um, let's sort of look maybe not so much at those people in middle America but the people who really did storm the Capitol a bit. Um, on Inauguration Day, you're watching um, some of the protests and you interview someone and that incident goes viral and I think that says a lot about actually even the Capitol stuff. Can you explain who Richard Spencer was and that whole incident? Yeah, so on Inauguration Day in early 2017, um, we were sort of roaming around the city after the inauguration because there were, there were protests taking place um, against Donald Trump. So there were people burning limousines, there were sort of, you know, spot fires literally happening, windows being broken and such. And we were in one of these hotspots near the White House where there was, you know, a substantial crowd of people, like I'd say a few hundred, not tens of thousands. Um, and Richard Spencer, who's um, what they call a member of the alt-right, so um, a, a white supremacist, um, a self-declared neo-Nazi, was standing on the street corner there. Um, and I thought this was really um, inflammatory because obviously the people who were sort of doing the burning and protesting were leftists who are against Donald Trump and he was a, a Donald Trump supporter. So I walked up to Richard Spencer essentially to ask him what he was doing there, like in a in a sense of aren't you kind of inflaming the situation by being here? Um, and as I was having a conversation with him, with camera rolling, uh, a couple of other people started peppering him with questions, uh, activist types who were around us. And then suddenly um, from out of the camera frame, a, a person with a mask on um, sort of flew in and punched him in the side of the head um, and then ran away. Uh, and Richard Spencer was, you know, hurt, ran off. Um, the cameraman and I followed him, said, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. I said, you need to go. So he jumped in a cab and disappeared. This ended up being like this massively viral video that spawned a whole lot of memes, uh, uh, you know, an article in the New York Times, is it okay to punch a Nazi? It ended up on Saturday Night Live. And it was kind of, when you look at it, now with the kind of this whole evolving situation 
discussion around white supremacy in the United States, what Donald Trump's enabled in regard to racism um, and, you know, lack of civility, this was kind of like just the beginning of how that sort of started to look under Donald Trump. It was kind of like a, a really pivotal moment and it was just something that kind of just happened to us in the course of our work. So it was really odd in that because I had live crosses to do for the network, I just said to the cameraman, quick, send that back to Sydney and then just went and did another live cross from uh, at the front of the White House without even knowing what had happened to it. <laughs> and then the next day I think it had, you know, had 15 million views or, or something. Yeah, weird moment. Before I get on to whether or not, I, I really want to know if um, if the more you think about it, the more you understand people like Trump and what's going on or the less. But before I get there, um, you've interviewed some really interesting people. Ben Ginsburg's the lawyer you spoke to at the convention, so I'm jumping around a bit here in time, when they nominate Trump. I think that's an interesting experience. We also spoke to people like John McCain. I mean, give me a sense of the Republican Party that feel left behind by Donald Trump. Well, you know, I think people have almost forgotten now, uh, and maybe a little bit it's sort of come back because of what happened on January 6th, but, you know, there was there was huge opposition to Donald Trump even being nominated back in 2016. You know, there was an entire movement, they called themselves the Never Trumpers, who tried to derail the Republican National Convention, you know, even though... He had won those primaries to the degree that he was able to take the nomination. Right up until he actually was on that stage accepting it, there was an entire movement trying to undermine um, him taking that. You know, Ted Cruz, for example, who was in the end kind of his key rival, was booed off the stage because he wouldn't endorse Donald Trump at that convention. In the end, bizarrely, although Trump had attacked both his wife and his father verbally in a pretty extreme way, Ted Cruz did endorse him. So, you know, power talks, right? But, you know, there was definitely a sense among moderate Republicans that Trump was kind of trying to burn the house down and, and kind of rebuild it in, you know, in his own fashion. Um, and yet people like Ben Ginsburg, who you referenced, who is a, a you know, long-term Republican lawyer who's acted for several um, Republican presidents during campaigns were, were still sort of standing behind Donald Trump at that time. And I, I interviewed Ginsburg just ahead of the Republican National Convention in Cleveland, and I, I put to him a line that someone else had put to me, well, Donald Trump's just trying to burn it all down, and, and he just walked off. <laughs> like he couldn't even sort of countenance the question that the party was going to be irreparably damaged or changed by this man, that by embracing the cult of personality, um, which I think, again, looking back four or five years, I think we can all say, well, obviously Republicans did that for the sake of the fact that they knew that he was going to win the election and he's got a lot of support, still does. But, you know, in the end they put aside traditional republicanism for the sake of winning the presidency how much is he an outlier um, you know some people think that the republicans have been going to the far right since reagan watched carter win in 76 how much do you think he's significantly different to what was happening before he came along well i don't i don't necessarily think he's sort of significantly different but i think in trump's case he's 
He's just chosen the bits of it that he liked and thinks that he could work with. You know, I mean, he's a, he's a he's actually a Democrat or has been a Democrat. He's donated to Hillary Clinton in the past in the Democratic Party and then kind of, you know, switched to the Republicans. Um, I mean, you know, Mark Colvin, bless him, before he died, asked me, is this sort of a victory for the Tea Party? I don't see that. I think the Tea Party is quite separate, much as many Tea Party um, devotees, Mike Pence being one of them, ended up working for Donald Trump. But Donald Trump was different um, and remains different because what what he did was he brought people into the tent that weren't in the tent. Um, They weren't in the Tea Party. They weren't Republicans necessarily. Some of them, as I said, were sort of swinging voters, had voted Democrat, were dissatisfied, maybe don't don't even vote generally. So he motivated those people. And I think that, you know, now that we're sort of past the 2020 election and for the moment we're past the era of Trump in part because, you know, his social media presence has been taken away from him, you know, but you can sort of say, well, what, where does that where does that leave um, the Republicans? You know, now that they're past Trump, do they go back to where they were? And I think they'll find that very difficult. I want to come back to what you make of the Capitol and and all this sort of thing. But um, we sort of see you on television, we hear you on radio. What was it actually like working there? You know, I mean, you're not you're not in the White House every day. You did get to the briefing room. You got. Um, in fact, you got some good leaks from the White House on conversations and that sort of thing. What was it actually like working there? Uh, well, firstly, absolutely relentless, um, especially after Donald Trump was elected. So, you know, you expect an election campaign to be really busy, but it's a set piece. You know, you you do the primaries and caucuses, you do the conventions, you do the debates, you do the election, um, except Donald Trump got elected, not Hillary Clinton. So... Like I recount the fact that in the um, on the night of the election, I ran into a very senior Australian correspondent from another television network who said, "Oh, it's all, it'll all be over soon. You'll be able to have a rest. It'll all go back to normal." And that's and I was like, "I don't know about that." And of course, it went completely bonkers. Really, um, there was a, a sort of little lull between the election and the. 2017 inauguration and then immediately that Donald Trump was inaugurated he just started doing stuff so you know we had the travel bans kick in immediately I was on a plane to Chicago you know airports were shut down Muslims couldn't come into the country you know pulled out of the Paris Agreement just started signing executive orders willy-nilly has you know press secretary after press secretary sacking you know the whole Russia probe, you know, Michael Flynn gets sacked, new NSA director. I mean, this was like every day. Um, it was, and yeah, people see, I mean, I. it's funny because my husband is no longer a, a journo, but he was a, a radio journo back in the day when I was presenting the country hour, he was a reporter. And there was one day when uh, I did a live cross to him and the talent that he was talking to walked away in the middle of the interview. And he said, oh, the talents just walked away live to air. And I said to him afterwards, you know, we never do that because we're like, we look, we're like ducks underneath, but we're supposed to look like, you know, everything, we're holding it together on top. And that was kind of like the three years that I covered Donald Trump, I think. You know, it was like you'd jump into the news breakfast studio or you'd, I'd be in a press conference and, you know, the way Donald Trump talks and it's like stream of consciousness 
and then I'd have to run out into a live shot and tell Virginia or Michael Rowland, what did he say? And it's like he was talking a stream of consciousness for two hours. <laughs> What's the headline in this? Like, wow. Uh, it was just, yeah, it was off the wall. It was, and it's it's really, um, it's super fun. It's really energising, but it's all, it's also just depleting as well, like over time. You know, I don't think we had a day off. There, there were periods in 2017, like I don't think I had a, a day off six months you know, it was just impossible to to stop. What was it like being in the press briefing room? That's my personal question. I would be, I couldn't get into the White House the one time I've been to America. Do you, do you sort of stop and does it freak you out a bit? Is it exciting or are you too busy working? Um, you know, the press briefing room is sort of so much less impressive than it kind of looks <laughs> when you get in there and it's like this, you know, tiny little room with dirty carpet and old chairs and it's, and in those early days of the administration it was so packed and to even be able to get into the room you'd have to get there like an hour before the set time of the briefing and as a foreign journalist initially I didn't have a White House pass over time I, I got one which enabled me to get in much more easily but took a lot of pressure as a foreign journalist to get that. So you'd have to like spend 40 minutes waiting at the gate, going through security, someone taking you in, then stand in the briefing room for like an hour. Inevitably it'd be delayed. It'd be packed. And all the seats are allocated to particular American networks. So you have to stand up. Then the chances of actually getting your question answered by the White House press secretary are very low. Um, you know, luckily for us and probably for a lot of people in the early days of the administration, they hadn't quite figured out who was who. So we were able to get our questions in a bit, which was a bit unheard of. And it became important because, of course, there ended up being that stoush between the Australian government and the Trump administration over refugees and the sort of infamous phone call with Malcolm Turnbull um, where Donald Trump accused him of trying to export the Boston Boston bombers and such. So we were able to as you said, get inside information from the White House on that and some leaks and actually do that, tell that story properly and get access. But then over time that kind of closed down. They, they realised that there was no benefit to be had of talking to the international press. Um, and also the staff turnover was just so huge that, you know, you'd spend months cultivating a contact in the National Security Agency, for example, and then they'd get sacked or they'd walk and then you, you have to go back to the beginning. So very difficult to get any sort of continuity or, or sort of approach it traditionally. Um, I'm going to come back to what what, um, what direction you think the country is heading in. I should point out to you and remind you, you'll have a link in your emails because you've signed up to this that allow you to just go and buy the book from Readings. And Readings is going to be one of the first places you can buy the book because there are printing the issues because place. of COVID. The Duffet first place. Because <laughs> they've had um, COVID printing issues. So keep that in mind. That email link is there um, so you can get your copy of Greetings from Trumpland before anybody else. Again, I'll come back to America, but Zoe, you, you follow, you're traipsing around Asia because of these bizarre summits with the North Korean leader. Mm. I want your take on the summits, but I also want to know, like, You've reported from tons of places around the world. Was that a big part of it, just for you personally, going back to the places you've reported on? Yeah, yeah, and 
I mean, I love Southeast Asia. I lived in Southeast Asia for five years in uh, Phnom Penh in Cambodia and then in Bangkok when I was Southeast Asia correspondent. It feels very familiar to me. Um, and I've spent a lot of time, you know, obviously in those places. So, you know, flying into Singapore from uh, Washington, D.C. and or and into Hanoi, it was like kind of coming home in a way. Um, but I also think, you know, it kind of lent something different to the the prism through which I viewed those summits. I mean, you know, in that sense of, well, where would you take a reclusive um, dictatorial leader if you were trying to encourage him to open up his country? Well, of course, you'd take him to Singapore because that's essentially what happened in Singapore. Or you would take him to Vietnam, a country that has, you know, sort of been able to do a hybrid communist sort of market economy and, you know, invest a lot of money in business and education and, it ha- you know, has huge growth rates and all those sorts of things. But but also, it, you know, is um, a country that squashes dissidents, um, is a country that has a terrible human rights record, is a place where I've reported undercover. In fact, my previous trip to Hanoi, I had been doing secret interviews with um, dissidents and sort of, you know, bloggers um, to try to get that story out. And I was quite surprised that I even got a visa to go in to cover the, the uh, Trump-Kim summit in Vietnam. So, you know, it's it's all those layers of things, isn't it, when you spend a lot of time in a place and you have sort of a different level of understanding of some of those things that you can then bring to what you're doing. But, of course, you know, there was also, it was also just complete hoopla um, around the, you know, historic summits between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un and that relationship with North Korea, in effect, completely fell over um, in the last 12 months or so because North Korea just realised it wasn't going anywhere. But, you know, in Donald Trump's mind, and this is something that we talk about a lot in the book, you know, he's he, he's a lot about ticking boxes. Like I said, I would do that. And he's a lot about I did that better than everyone who came before me. So I was the first one to step into North Korea. I was the first sitting president to meet with the North Korean leader. You know, they're box-ticking exercises in his mind. And, that you know, in the end, most people will remember the two of them coming together and having that handshake with all of the wall of flags behind them. And, you know, people like us and the people who are listening to us and watching this who are interested in foreign affairs will go, yeah, but it didn't go anywhere. But, you know, that for Donald Trump's base, that's not kind of what matters. It's the fact that he was able to have the meeting. One of the wildest press conferences, actually, I think I saw of his was after the Singapore trip, I think it is. Um, you, you probably weren't in the States, but he he sort of wandered through the front garden of the White House and I think took questions for a really long time, for I think for about 30 or 40 minutes, and he just drops so many outrageous things about how good it is that the North Korean leader doesn't have to put up with a free press and you know, he just say so many different outrageous, wrong, false, inflammatory things. I'm really interested to know how strategic do you think he is? How much of it's instinct? How much of it's planned? What do you think is going on in his head? Yeah, so it's really interesting. Um, I talked to John Bolton about this, who was, you know, one of his advisors who also ended up being given the boot. Um, And, you know, John Bolton is a hard nut as well, to be clear. But, you know, his, his sort of answer was, 
it's not sort of strategic in any sort of detailed sense. Like it's not like he's made notes and thought through what what he's going to do. But but that doesn't mean there's no strategy. It a lot of it I think is gut feel, but it's it's kind of like a um, like you know he's built a sort of structure around the way he's going to behave, and he continues to follow that. So undermining truth, you know, fragmenting trust, throwing those little sort of truth bombs or, you know, fake news bombs just to see where they land, pushing out policy ideas that seem really off the wall just to see what the response is. And then it's like, oh, no, he was taken out of context or, yeah, no, we're actually going to do that. Um, You know, there's a lot of testing. um, And I think, like, one of the good examples I think of not, I don't know if he described as strategy, but what he's learnt, like what he knows works, is the whole birther debate around Barack Obama. You know, is was Barack Obama actually born in the United States? Was he born, you know, in Kenya or Jakarta or whatever? He's not really American. He's not eligible to be president when he was born in Hawaii. Um, you know, Donald Trump was a key protagonist in that well before he was president, well before he was even a candidate. And I feel that he learnt a lot from how he could utilise the media, how he could manipulate people's perceptions, um, how he could make people accept at least the seed of doubt around something. And then he, he built that throughout you know, that period before he became a candidate and then throughout his presidency to to the end where he actively deployed that in regard to is voting legitimate, is mail-in voting legitimate, you know, is this this whole thing being, you know, our strings being pulled from outside and, you know, was the election stolen? So in a way it all came home to roost at the end, um, and then the other thing that you know I won't go on, but it's really important is the use of social media. Obviously, I mean Twitter was just an uncurated Donald Trump megaphone um, right until the end, um, and and he just used that to absolute maximum effect. Uh, I'm curious about Twitter actually because it seems to me perfect to him because. He doesn't have to answer a question. He doesn't even need, even need to say something substantial. Um, but let me get to some of your questions uh, on the chat. Remember, if you put them in the chat section on your screen and then Chris will send them over to me. Zoe, um, of course, reader wants to know this. What does Zoe think the Republicans will do next? Are they going to support Trump as a candidate for the presidency? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, I I think my instinct is to say, I don't know, but do you know what? I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I mean, yeah. nothing nothing really surprises me. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, and, you know, I think um, I've sort of been a journalist too long when it comes to the point that nothing surprises me. And I've been in so many situations, not only in the US, where you see a story evolving and evolving and you think that can't possibly happen and then it happens and then something even more wild happens and you're just like, whoa. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's very possible because in the end, what do they want? They want to be in control. Um, they know, I mean, okay, Joe Biden won the election with 80-plus million 
votes, Donald Trump got 74 plus million, which is the second highest total in history. Um, what happens when those Democrats kind of get a bit, oh, yeah, everything's back to normal now, we're cool, but you've still got a lot of motivated Trump supporters um, who, you know, are right behind him and, and still are not happy. And, and in, in a way, the fact that they've had a sniff of being taken notice of, if you think of them as the forgotten people, which is one sort of way of referencing them, then they're going to want that back. So, you know, I think it's it's very possible. Um, that said, you know, he'd be quite old in four years. You know, will, will he be up for it? Is Melania up for it? I, I doubt it on her part. But. <laughs> Maybe that doesn't matter soon. Uh, Leonie wants to know, Mitch McConnell, uh, Mitch McConnell, why would he vote to acquit and then deliver that speech about Trump being responsible for the storming of the Capitol? Do you think he has a strategy? Leonie wants to know if this is a battle between Trump and McConnell for the Republican Party. Uh, no, I, I mean, I think McConnell is just what I, exactly what I just said, that, you know, he was never going to impeach Trump because that was going to, that would prevent Trump from running for the presidency again and also disenfranchise, you know, half of the voting population. Um, and, but he's also kind of appeasing a moderate group. So he's just literally having a bit each way. And, you know, Mitch McConnell has a lot to answer for around what happened, what's happened over, not only over the last five years, but during Barack Obama's term. I mean, he's, you know, the partisanship, the, the sort of deliberate blocking that has gone on in US politics um, from the Republican side and not to say the Democrats are in any way innocent. Um, but, you know, Mitch McConnell's been a big, big part of that. But I, I literally just think he's just keeping his options open. That's what good politicians do. Um, so the book's called Greetings from Trump Land. So I guess the, my question actually is about is a news question. Like, is it now Trump Land forever? Like that news system is broken. The information stream is completely polluted. Um, we are the model of a Jeffersonian democracy with a perfect town square by mm. comparison. Mm. Is that is that news system broken forever? Um, yeah, unfortunately, uh, I don't have a lot of hope for it um, mm. because what you have is a, a much bigger population than Australia. So the news organisations can afford to be much more partisan because they'll still get a big audience um, and a captive audience if they just take one point of view so you you don't it's not like switching on a program here where you'll get a range of views it may be slightly skewed left or right but broadly you'll get a range of views there if you watch fox you watch fox if you watch msnbc you watch msnbc maybe you watch cnn which is about the most middle thing you could find and it's obviously not middle it's definitely left um but then also you have all these fringe news organizations so you know before trump was elected and sort of back in the early part of his term it, it was like oh people are watching trump supporters are watching fox well fox is now not extreme enough for many of those people so they're going further into the fringes with one american news network newsmax the, these really kind of conspiracy-oriented news organisations that are becoming more mainstream. So if anything, it's getting more fragmented. Um, and 
you know, I just think it's really concerning. It's just preaching to the converted, you know, telling people what they want to hear and, and they never sort of hear an alternative point of view. And that goes for left and right, to be clear. Um, you know, I think one of the things that sticks in my mind most from the election was after the election when Hillary had lost on election night, it was about three o'clock in the morning at her venue and all of the Democrats were in tears and lying on the floor and just like it was like a wake. And one of them said to me, I just don't know who these people are. I feel like our country's been taken over by aliens. And I said, well, have you ever been to Ohio or Kentucky or Western Pennsylvania, like tried to sort of talk to people? Oh, no, 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 I would never go there. Um, so there's a real divide. There's a geographical divide. There's an economic divide. There's a racial divide, and and then the media is kind of um, inflaming that in some ways. Uh, there's a question here from Dean uh, Zoe. What was the cutoff date for your book? Were you able to cover the second failed impeachment? Um, and I've got a sub question to that about how you worked out what to say in America when we're already drowning in news from America, but um, Dean's specific questioning is what's the cutoff date for your book? Yeah, so we allude to the second impeachment vote, um, but it kind of finishes after the inauguration. And, and I think the reason we did that is because I knew that he was never going to get impeached. So it was like, well, what's the point of holding this book even longer for something that we already know? Um, so, yeah, that... That was sort of the point after the inauguration yes, we wrote right. the conclusion. Yeah. And just before we, uh, this is probably will be the last question, but how did you pitch what you were saying? Like, I mean, I understand that, you know, rushing out, getting onto breakfast news and sort of trying to say or sum up what Trump was saying, but how did you, who did you target your reporting at? Was it the people who had already read the New York Times that day or who, who did you think you were talking to when you were doing all your ABC stuff from there? Look, what I really tried to do, and this is, this is, I mean, I think this is kind of unconscious anyway, but in this particular case, not only me, but all of us in the Bureau were very um, aware and made a conscious effort to try to be non-judgmental and just put, put it there and let the audience decide whether it was completely wacko or legit. Um, and a lot of the stuff just sort of told itself in that sense, you know, grab them by the pussy, Muslim bans, whatever, um, you know, taking ch children away from their parents on the Mexican border. I mean, there's a thousand examples. It's like, well, this is what's happening today. Um, I'm not going I'm, I'm, to, particularly as an ABC journalist, I'm not there to t sort of judge that or push you in a particular direction. And I don't think you need to. Um, so I don't, and I, you know, with what the conversation we've just had about the polarized media, you know, the New York Times and the Washington Post have a particular agenda as well. Um, and so we just tried not to have one. And in this particular administration, at times that was really hard um, because there's also a question of what, at what point do you call things out? So there are some there are some points where you have to say, well, you know, this is completely unconventional. Um, and this is, you know, not what normally happens, to be clear. Um, but the, I think the audience is smart enough to come to that without you stepping over that line. 
you miss it, Zoe? Um, yeah, well, how could you not? I mean, in some ways I do. Um, it was it was definitely a 24-7 job for four years and I was very burnt out at the end of it. Um, and, you know, Raph, I just feel really lucky to have been on the front line of so many interesting things that have happened in the world. You know, my last big trip, I know we're running out of time, but my last big trip was to Alaska um, where we went right up into the Arctic to look at the Trump administration's plans for drilling for oil and gas in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and, you know, polar bears and uh, Indigenous Alaskans and, you know, seeing climate change up close. Um, you know, the job is a great privilege, you know, to, to stand in the Oval Office, to, you know, be in that position. I mean, I, I was very lucky to sort of be able to have in effect, 15 years as a correspondent, and that was kind of the end um, of my journalism career. Um, and, you know, I just feel really lucky to to have had that and to be able to finish on that kind of note. And then hopefully this book helps people to understand, you know, how Donald Trump got there. And, and it's more than just US politics. It's about our society um, and, you know, where we're going Hundred mm. uh, percent. The book is greetings from Trumpland, of course. Um, you've got an email in your inbox. You can be one of the first to get your hot little hands on it. This conversation was not brought to you by Facebook. This conversation mm. was brought to you by one of the best cultural curators in the country. That is, of course, Readings, who've been curating intelligent conversation for decades, and we're very grateful that they're a part of our lives. Um, greetings from Trumpland is great. Zoe is great for two reasons, or for quite a few reasons. A, she's just fantastic. B, she um, is an extraordinary reporter. C, she comes from ABC Rural um, and all of the people who come out of the rural part of the ABC know what they are talking about. Um, a huge thank you to everyone involved in getting the book together, uh, in everyone involved in organising the event. Um, read it. I don't know if you'll be happy or sad about the state of America, but you'll certainly know um, a hell of a lot more. And thanks for jumping online and joining us tonight. Have a great evening. Thanks, Thank Zoe. you, Raph. Thank you so much. See you later. Thanks, Chris. And thank you, Raf, and thank you to all of you that came. Do run out and order that book, Rafi and Zoe. That was a privilege. Thank you so much. Thanks, Chris. Bye-bye. Thank you Good so night, much. Everyone. Thanks for having me. Good night. Good night. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast on our website, where you'll also find all kinds of bookish recommendations and plenty of great books, music, film and TV. While there... You can sign up to our e-news or to receive the free monthly print newsletter, The Readings Monthly. Production and music for this podcast was provided by Tom Hoskins. All of our podcasts are recorded and produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation. We respectfully acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and that sovereignty is never ceded.